All right, I, I need to start off just like I start off every class that I teach, and that's howdy. Howdy. <laughs> Whoop. Yeah, there you go. I don't know what that does to the sound people, but hey, I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, this room, this room is outstanding, but imagine that there's almost maybe at least one or two times as many people that are out there that are either home for the summer or on mission right now. Every one of us is on mission serving God in some form or, or, or capacity. So it's really cool to see what God has done. I've been with Antioch since the beginning and seeing such a, a small group that might be able to sit around one table and seeing what God is doing around all of these tables from wall to wall. It is wonderful to have been part of that and seen that and seeing what God has done. He is faithful. I'd like to at least show, start off just showing a picture of my, my grandchildren. So this is about the only time I ever got to see them to, all together in a while. This is at Christmas because three of my grandchildren live in Denver. The other two live in College Station. All but one has been born in Texas. So they're all Texans, except for one. We're going to claim Texas for that one. So that's Eden and Hadassah and Amelia and the little one that looks like about to fall out of their arms is Abigail and the one with a cheesy smile, probably smiles a lot like I do sometimes, and that's Simon. And he's as mischievous as he looks, no doubt about it. Wonderful children. I am a blessed man in so many ways, so blessed to be with you this morning. So as we talk about... Today, we're doing the let us statements. If you remember last week, Clayton Fraley talked about let us hold firmly to the faith. Whoop. Right? Whoop. I like that. Keep that up. That's great. So today is a really, I think, just a verse, a set of verses that are Hebrews 4. So you might go there now. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It is really a pivotal place. If you remember, the book of Hebrews was written to the Jewish people in Rome, many of them that all of that had converted to Christianity. And we're at a time that's before the fall of the temple, which happened in AD 70. So somewhere in the 60s, when Nero was the emperor of Rome, he had made Christianity illegal. Judaism was still legal to, to worship in that way, but Christianity was not. In fact, to the point, as many of you may know, that many Christians were persecuted and even killed for their faith. And so as a group, they were starting to drift back. Two things were happening. They were starting to drift back to their Judaism roots, the traditions of the former Old Testament, going back to those things. And Jesus had become less and less uh, a main part of their, their faith. The second is, is that the Roman, as you can imagine, being a Christian in Rome, you have a whole set of world influences that impact you on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, when I became a Christian when I was 27 years old, I was uh, working on my PhD at Oklahoma State University, and you know, I thought my education was going to be what, what made it me have purpose in life. And finally, for the first time, someone explained to me what Jesus Christ had done for me on the cross. I remember as a kid, I would dream. I knew about Jesus. I would dream. There was a show called The Time Tunnel. Anybody ever hear that? It's an old black and white where they would go running down the time, uh, time tunnel and they would end up in a place uh, 
that uh, they would go back and they would subtly change history. And in my mind, I thought, I wish I could go back down that time tunnel and tell Jesus what was going to happen to him. So maybe he could avoid that. But then when I was 27 years old, which kind of tells you I was a, a pretty, you know, not really with it in a lot of ways, I found out. I found out that Jesus knew that's why he came to earth to die on a cross, to be raised again, and to be the sacrifice that, that's for us so that we can be joined back with him. So today, what we're going to talk about is the let us statement is let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. And that's what we're going to live today. So, you know, if you remember, there's two parts of this. One is we're going to find out, we're going to find mercy, mercy at the throne room of grace. And then we're also going to find the power to overcome that sin in our lives. And that's really what happened when I became a Christian at 27. I, first of all, realized that he died for my sins. But if you can imagine when you're 27 and you've lived a life in college and all, you, there's a lot of junk in your life. There's a lot of regrets, a lot of regrets. I wish I could go back and change. There's also a lot of addictions that had come on me and someday maybe I'll talk more about those addictions. But what I found is that I not only had forgiveness of sins, but by the Holy Spirit in my life, I had the power through his spirit to overcome those addictions in my life. And today I'm believing that that's going to happen to many of you. If you're in those areas, there, there's no doubt that all of us in our lives at one time have been hopeless. When we have felt helpless, that's why Jesus came. So let's go to the book of Hebrews and let's read. First of all, we might in context, just if we go to chapter four, verses 14 through 16, if we think about it, we've already been through to this point where the writer of Hebrews, because these Jewish Christians are falling away, because they're being influenced by the world, and aren't we doing, isn't that what we see happening in America today? We're in the same boat as they are. Because of that, he's trying to encourage them, hold on firmly to the faith, which is what Clayton talked about yesterday, or last, last Sunday. And if we think about it, we've also heard him them talk, the writer talk about how Jesus is greater, greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses and the prophets. And now we're going to hear that Jesus is greater than the Aaron, the high priest. So let's read this as we go through. And its title on my Bible is Jesus, our great high priest. 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of need. So let's unpack this a little bit. And first of all, I'd like to do a word association with you. And I'm going to say a word and I want you to say the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Make sure it's PG, okay? Okay, first one is Aggie. I heard football, I heard whoop. 
All right. How about life group? Family. Prayer. Do you hear all those different words? Wow. Isn't that cool? That's what life group. If you're not part of a life group, I encourage you to become part of a life group. All right. How about priest? Jesus. Well, yeah. Okay. What else? The first thing that comes to mind. I appreciate that. That's the way it should be. Yeah. Priest. Holy. Well, I don't know about you, but the first thing that comes to my mind is a Catholic priest. Okay. With this big white hat on holding up the Eucharist is what they talk about according to their faith and blessing the Eucharist. This is not what they're talking about here. And in this room, there probably may be many different ideas about what a priest is. So let's talk about what they're talking about. They're, they're at least starting us with what we call the priesthood in the order of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. And Aaron was given instructions on how to present an offering for the forgiveness of sins for the people of Israel. And that happened once a year. Once a year, the high priest, the high priest, in this case, if you go to Leviticus 16, you don't have to go there, but this is what I'm going to talk out of, is Leviticus 16. The great high priest on that day would do what they call the Day of Atonement, where atonement means covering, means reconciliation. And on that day, the high priest would go into, and that's the only day, the Holy of Holies three times to offer sacrifices. The first time he would take a bull and he would sacrifice a bull. He would lay his hands on the bull's head, which symbolized that high priest's sins going into the bull. And then he would sacrifice the bull and collect the blood. And he would take that blood and go through the symbolism between what I'm about to share and what we're gonna read and what we just read is just tremendous. He went through for the first, uh, second time, he went through into the veil, into the Holy of Holies. There are three parts of the temple, outer court, holy place, and holy of holies, which sometimes is called the most holy place. Okay, he went through the veil into that place and he sprinkled the blood of the bull on the top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which was sitting in that holy, holy place. And so he would do that for the forgiveness of his sins. Then he would come back out and there were two goats. One through lots was identified as a scapegoat. The other one is identified as, a, as the sacrifice goat. It says the goat to the Lord if you read Leviticus. That scapegoat, he would tie a red ribbon around his horns. The other goat, he sacrificed, collected the blood and went back in through the veil for the last time to the Holy of Holies and again sprinkled seven times the blood of that goat on top of the mercy seat. You see all the symbolism that's going through on that. And then he comes out and they take, they take the scapegoat and they go out into the wilderness which represents the sins of the people of Israel going out away from the Israelites. You know what the Lord says? That when he forgives you, he takes your sin and he casts it into the what? Into the sea. He forgets it. That's what's happening with that scapegoat. Just the tremendous symbolism. And in many ways, that's when we look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. And in fact, Jesus said the same thing. If you turn your Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 39. 
keep a finger over on Hebrews just because we're going to go back there. And this is where the Pharisees are coming to him and they're questioning him. And Jesus says, I have a question for you. Okay? And I have a statement to you, really, he said. It says, you search, this is to the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the religious hypocrites of the day. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. So Jesus here is saying the Old Testament, which is what they were reading. We, read, we think the whole Bible is our scriptures. At this time, it was the Old Testament. Says so all that is about me. And Jesus, as we talk about and look at the atonement, we see that in reality, through Leviticus, what has happened is that God has set up some terminology so that when Jesus did come, they would know exactly what Jesus was doing, why he was on that cross, and what had happened when he got raised from the dead. It's really, really cool, and this is what that verse is going to continue to talk about. You know, often people say that Jesus is a great teacher. He's a great role model. And generally, they say that because they want to be kind to you because they don't like how you're telling them that Jesus is the only way. But what they don't get is this. They don't get that God, holy, man, sinner. Sinner that deserves wrath. Sinner that deserves justice. And sinner that deserves eternal separation from God. God loves us so much, he wanted to bring those two together, back together. And that's what we're going to talk about as we continue to talk about Jesus Christ, who is our reconciler. He's our bridge. He is our savior. Now, as I told you, Hebrews continues to talk about how Jesus is greater than anything in the Old Testament, greater than the angels, greater than the, the prophet Moses, greater than Aaron, the high priest. And through actually the verse that we just started with, all the way through chapter 7, that was a commentary on a place in the Bible that we see a word called Melchizedek, which means the king of righteousness. The king of righteousness shows up two places in the Old Testament. Not very many verses, about four verses total. One verse is in Genesis 14, don't go there now, but just so you know, because it's mentioned here in Hebrews, Genesis 14, it, there's a, a king that shows up. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's also the priest most high. This is in the Old Testament in Genesis. And then in verse 110, or uh, Psalms 110, it brings it up again. And in the relationship, it's called the Masonic Psalm, because David is is uh, giving a prophetic message. In fact, Jesus actually quoted this psalm in 110. It's the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. But in it, it talks about how the Messiah will be the great high priest forever. And so he is the great high priest forever. So if we go to Hebrews 7, 1 through 14, again, just trying to build this where we are with Jesus, that he is a higher order. So it says, for this this is in verse uh, chap, uh, books, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 4. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. This is after Lot was taken prisoner or 
and his family and all his belongings. And this Melchizedek blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part. So Abraham, because he is blessing this priest of Most High, Melchizedek, gives him a tenth part of everything that he had captured from these wicked kings. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Jesus is better than Aaron. So let's go back to our Bible verses for today and let's just unpack it because there's the first part is just what really excites me, which I bet many of you just kind of gloss over. And I want you to think about what that is. As we look at Hebrews 4.14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. What do we gloss over? Jesus is alive. This is not some past thing in some history in mind in a book. Jesus right now is alive. He is at the right hand of God, at the throne of grace. And he is, we're going to find out, praying for you every moment of every day. This is not something that's a one-time deal. He is constantly there. He is alive. And when I hear that word, it just makes me want to stand up and worship, which we're going to get to do in a few minutes. He's alive. We're not, we're not serving some history. We're serving the true and living God. That's why you hear me say often, thank you for the living God. He is alive. And as we look through that, we also see he is the son of God. The son of God that was sacrificed on a cross. And when he approaches God, he's not approaching him with the blood of a bull or of goats. He's approaching him with his blood. And you know what God says? It's enough. Remember the last words of Jesus? It is finished. It is finished. He presents this to God and he says, it's enough. It's enough to cover your guilt, your guilt. It's enough to cover and remove your curse. It's enough to overcome the alienation, God, man, because of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? All right, let's go on to 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. So as we approach this, let's think about this. You know, right now, there's been a lot of hard things that have happened in the last few weeks, hadn't there? Let's be real. And people ask me, well, why would God allow suffering? Well, I don't have all the understanding of God, but I do know one thing that is the most important thing that I have to remember is that the Christian faith has a different God than any other God. We have a God that has come and suffered with us Fully man suffering in this world. Can you not imagine people that lied about you? People that were out to get you every single day of your life. The enemy, spiritual enemies after you all the time. 
having nails driven into your hand and through your feet, crowns of thorns stuck on your head, mocked and spit and beat 39 times with a lash, with little things on the end of them. He suffered. He suffered for us, and he knows what suffering is like. So as many of you know, Linda and I have been going through a, a journey. She has, uh, was identified with cancer. That cancer was sent into remission after a year. Praise God. The cancer came back. She has new treatments, and that cancer is now cannot find it in her body. Praise God. Now, what held us together is a faith that we know that we have a God that suffers for us. He has already said, he knows exactly. He knows the temptations that we had of trying to say, just forget it. Okay, or the temptations of us fighting with each other over whatever and not seeing things eye to eye. But he brought us together and has held us fast because we know two things. He has suffered and he has been tempted beyond what we could ever be tempted. Many of you think, well, if he hasn't ever sinned, then he really does not know what temptation is like. And in reality, it is the person that rejects temptation time after time after time that only knows the power of that sin or of that temptation in their lives. And he did it for 33 years. Every, he knows temptation beyond what we could ever know. So don't ever think Jesus could never know what I was tempted with. All right, so let's go on to 16. And in 16, it talks about, I think, the most exciting part. Of course, I've said that several times now. Because <laughs> I'm just, this is a verse that takes all the way from Genesis to Revelations. There's the throne room of grace, which you will see in the Revelations. It says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. Again, I want to say this is not a one-time thing when you come up and say, hey, I'm a Christian. Man, I'm good. I prayed the prayer. Okay, that's approaching the throne of grace. It's day to day. You're with him, standing with him in that throne of grace. And he, he is alive and he is answering that throne, your request, your needs, and he knows your needs better than you do. There's no doubt about that. There are things that we prayed for that, thank God, did not come true. Anybody ever pray for a spouse and that spouse didn't, didn't follow through? You know what? Praise God. I have a beautiful, wonderful wife of 36 years. Isn't that awesome? All right. So praise God. He knows things better than we do. And and many people in this room may actually, there may be people in this room that right now today feel helpless and feel hopeless. And here we have the greatest news ever that a hopeless, helpless people can be saved and can walk with him every day of their life. They can. As you yield yourself to him, as you come to the word of God and read the word of God, as you have fellowship in your life groups, those people are walking together with confidence that we have a great high priest that is right now interceding for you. And I'd like to just go to one other Bible verse before we go into our discussions, and that is Romans 8, 34. Romans 8, 34. 
and this is one that makes me want to stand up and say praise God, because it says Jesus Christ. This is Romans 8, 34, and starting in kind of what we would call a B version. 34 says Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So right now, Jesus is at the throne room of God. He's in heaven and he is interceding for you, every one of you right now, right this minute. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus will help us overcome our weakness because he himself was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we can have confidence that when we approach him, we will find mercy, which is the forgiveness of sin, and grace, which is the power to overcome sin. 